Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or details page. In our most recent message, Tom on Father's Day went through what it looked like for the founding fathers to not only lead their families with God in mind, but to lead a country with God in mind. And today we're going to see their example through scripture of how they prioritized that for themselves, for their families, and for America. And now, here's Tom Claiborne with his message called Real But Imperfect Men Founded America. Heard you get your sermon notes page out. And I actually unusually have uh, less uh, scriptures than, than normal. Um, passage that we're going to refer to the most is on the front of your bulletin, actually. Uh, so you can turn to that or <laughs> flip your bulletin back and forth or whatever. Real but imperfect men founded America. Father's Day several years ago, and it was time to pass out the gifts and recognize uh, um, the different categories of uh, special gifts for fathers in this congregation. And it got to the part where they're the oldest father, and they, they had all the fathers stand, and they, they eliminated them by the decades, you know. If you're in your 20s, please be seated. If you're in your 30s, kept going until finally they get up to the 70s, and there's just a handful of, of men standing in this congregation. And, uh, and then they said, all of you who are in your 80s can sit down, and two men were still standing. And they're both in their 90s, obviously, and they're looking back and forth as they're calling each age. And finally, uh, when they got to 94, one of the older men had to sit down, and in frustration said to his granddaughter, that same guy beats me every year. <laughs> Duh, Yeah. <laughs> You see, truth uh, doesn't change. Reality doesn't change. But perceptions sometimes do. And things, as we have really learned in recent years in our culture, things get redefined. And that's usually not good. And in fact, that guy could have identified as a 99-year-old and won. <laughs> you know, the majority of today's message was something I preached for a men's gathering in Indiana nine years ago. The title in 2012 was basically non-threatening. This same title today in 2021 would be considered offensive by a lot of people. Real but imperfect men founded America. You see, for many years, America's founders were exalted to a level of near perfection. <laughs> and that was not accurate because they weren't perfect. And some had real issues. But in very recent years, the pendulum has swung drastically so that now those same men are portrayed as evil scumbags who all owned slaves and all supported slavery and thus they should be canceled, disgraced, and condemned. 
And that's far from accurate as well. So I, as I considered using this message from, from that men's gathering nine years ago for Father's Day, I questioned briefly if I should, given that climate. But it occurred to me that this can be used as a teaching moment about grace and about God using imperfect people, just as he has done throughout the ages. You see, I'm not going to discard the first five books of the Old Testament simply because they were written by Moses and Moses once killed a man. And I'm not going to discard the book of Psalms because King David committed adultery and abused his political power and arranged for an innocent man to be killed. That's disgusting, but I'm not going to throw out the Psalms just because David did that. And I'm not going to discard 13 or 14 books of the New Testament because the Apostle Paul had a dark chapter in his life characterized by oppression, persecution, and the violation of people's human rights. Because that's what he had done at one chapter in his life. But I'm not going to throw Paul out, nor his missionary journeys, nor the writings of the New Testament. I am thankful that if God can use those messed up people those messed up sinners, he can even use messed up sinners like me. You see, we find useful life lessons in the flawed lives of people all through history. And it's a good thing. So to help emphasize four key characteristics that God desires in men and women, but we're focusing on men today, most of my examples are going to be from early America, without apology. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, in front of your bulletin says this. It's not really a text, but it goes with so much of what we're talking about today. Be on your guard, it says. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Here's the first thing I want us to notice about real men, and that is that real men live for God. And heads up, okay, for those of you who watch the watch and to see how far we're on the outline, this is going to take about half the message, this first point. So don't panic that we're not to the second point and, and a lot of times fast. All right, number one, <laughs> real men live for God. This characteristic is not exactly popular today, and it's not exactly prevalent, unfortunately. But in early America, this was respected and it was fairly common that real men live for God. See, real men living for God means they recognize who God is. We recognize who God is and who God is in relation to us. King David was anointed as a young teenager to be the future king of Israel. So he spent from that time on knowing he was going to be the king of Israel... And yet David never forgot, except that one little episode, <laughs> who was really king in his life. Psalm 145.1, David wrote, I will exalt you, my God, the king. I think it's pretty striking that a man who was the king is acknowledging, is calling God king. <laughs> Psalm 5.2, David wrote, listen to my cry for help, my king and my God, 
for to you I pray. You see, David remembered always who the real king was, even if he had the title. You know, it's quite evident from the writings, both public and private, well documented of America's founders, that most of them recognized the same thing David did, that God was king. George Washington, what, what a resume. He was a surveyor, he was a farmer, he was a soldier, he was a leader, he was commander of the Continental Army, he was considered father of our country. And yet George Washington was quite reluctant, quite hesitant to become the first president of this country because he wanted to avoid having unchecked power like the European kings had because he knew who the real king was. A hint of that knowledge is in one of his personal prayer books, which these are still all on record. In 1752, on a Wednesday morning, George Washington wrote this. He said, Almighty and eternal Lord God, the great creator of heaven and earth, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, look down from heaven in pity and compassion upon me, thy servant, who humbly prostrate myself before thee, sensible of thy mercy and my own misery. There was a man who understood who he was in relationship to God. Was he perfect? No. But he understood who he was in relation to God. James Madison, the chief architect of the United States Constitution, the fourth president, wrote in 1785 in Memorial and Remonstrance. He said, It is the duty of every man to render to the Creator such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. This duty is precedent both in order of time and degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. And notice this statement. He goes, before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. James Madison, who was most responsible for our United States Constitution, believed that you couldn't be a good citizen until you understood you were under God's authority. All 50 state constitutions, all 50 appeal in some form or, form or another to God as the creator and provider of liberties. They wanted to acknowledge up front, God's the boss. You see, real men understand the under God principle. That we are under God's authority, that our lives and our laws are subservient to him. And men, we will never be the kind of husband father or citizen that we should be until we recognize who we are in relation to God. If we think we're the big shot, we're setting ourselves up for the fall. But living for God also means recognizing our dependence upon God. America's founders knew that they were nothing without God's help and intervention, and they constantly said it. So they viewed the Declaration of Independence as also a declaration of their dependence upon God. They were saying, okay, we're independent of you, Mr. King in England, because God's the king, and we depend on him. We're not independent of him. Listen to these references from the Declaration. They refer to the laws of nature and of nature's God. Remember this phrase, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. How about this phrase, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, capital S, capital J. And then in the last line of the document, 
they announced this, for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, capital D, capital P, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Four times they referenced that God was the boss. <laughs> and it's also why in early America, they not only had national days of prayer. Some people today have issues with that every first Thursday in May, we have a national day of prayer. That was common in the early days of the country. But they also not only had national days of prayer, they had national days of prayer and fasting, prayer and repentance, where they called the nation to repent of their sins. Founder Benjamin Rush once wrote about a conversation he had with John Adams in Congress in 1777. It's one of my favorite stories from early America. Rush had been gone with the army, so he had missed a lot of the proceedings. And so he comes into, into Congress, he's been gone, and he whispers to John Adams, asking him if he thought that they would succeed in the struggle with Great Britain. And here's John Adams' reply. He said, yes, if we fear God and repent of our sins. Can you even imagine a conversation like that taking place in today's Congress? <laughs> of someone saying, are, are we going to be successful in this? Yeah, if we fear God and repent of our sins, then we might be successful. See, real men know that apart from God, we can accomplish very little because we are all flawed sinners dependent on a Savior. Living for God also means a third thing, and that is respect. We respect His Word. See, this naturally flows from the first two points. So I'm going to ask you, man or woman today, do you respect the Bible like America's founders did? In 1782, the first English Bible was printed in the United States. It was commissioned and paid for by Congress with government funds, 1782. And in the annals of Congress, you can go to the Library of Congress in Washington and read these things, everything that's ever been said in Congress. In 1782, when they passed that ruling to pay government funds to buy Bibles, they said it is a, quote, neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of the schools. In other words, they used government funds to print the first Bible in the United States in 1782, specifically so it could be used in the public schools across the land. Many of America's founders also served in leadership roles in various religious and Bible organizations. You see, they felt strongly that the Bible and public life would result in a better society. Let me give you some examples. John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, also served as vice president of the American Bible Society. Francis Dana, a member of the Continental Congress, Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court, belonged to a group called the Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Indians and Others. He goes, how can we reach the Indians with the gospel of Christ? John Jay, the original Chief Justice of the United States, was president of the American Bible Society, American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Francis Scott Key, author of the Star-Spangled Banner, was manager and vice president of the American Sunday School Union. Elias Boudinot was president of the Continental Congress, but he was also founder and first president of the American Bible Society. He was president of the New Jersey Bible Society, member of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, and also a member of the Massachusetts Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge. DeWitt Clinton, governor of New York, U.S. senator, Introduced the 12th Amendment, was also manager and vice president of the American Bible Society. I got more examples. I got two or three pages of those at home, back in my office. Example after example. Uh, but I, let me close with this one. Alexander Hamil Hamilton signed the, the Constitution on our 
what, $10 bill, proposed formation of the Christian Constitutional Society to spread Christian government to other nations. Wanted to start an organization so that America could get up other nations, have a Christian government. You see, for most of them, this was a deeply personal thing. My favorite president, John Quincy Adams, served as a senator. He served as the Secretary of State and then eventually the sixth president. You may not realize that he was also a diplomat to Russia, get this, at age 14. <laughs> he was ambassador to five different nations. He's also referred to, at that time, was referred to as the hellhound for slavery, or the hellhound of slavery, because of his constant harassment in Congress about ending slavery. He took seriously Ephesians 6.4. Ephesians 6.4 says this, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That man who did all those things, such an amazing godly leader, once wrote a letter home to his son from Russia in September of 1811. It's a little bit long, but hang with me here. Think about this. His future president is writing to his son. He says, my dear son, in your letter of the 18th January to your mother, you mentioned that you read to your aunt a chapter in the Bible or a section of Doddridge's annotations every evening. This information gave me great pleasure, or real pleasure, for so great is my veneration for the Bible and so strong my belief that when duly read and meditated on, it is of all books in the world that which contributes most to make men good, wise, and happy. He goes, that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more steadily they pursue the practice of reading it throughout their lives, the more lively and confident will be my hopes that they will prove useful citizens of their country, respectable members of society, and a real blessing to their parents. But I hope you have now arrived at an age to understand that reading, even in the Bible, is a thing in itself neither good nor bad, but that all the good which can be drawn from it is by the use and improvement of what you have read with the help of your own reflection. Skipping down, he says, I advise you, my son, in whatever you read, and most of all uh, in reading the Bible, to remember that it is for the purpose of making you wiser and more virtuous. He goes, I have myself for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. <laughs> my custom is to read four or five chapters every morning immediately after rising from the bed. It employs about an hour of my time and seems to me the most suitable manner of beginning the day. John Quincy Adams to his son. Dads, men, are you reading the Bible every single day? Are you reading the Bible every single day? And are you encouraging and guiding your children to follow your example? Real men live for God. Here's the second thing real men do. Real men live with courage. Passage on the bulletin says, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. See, courage is an honored quality in the Bible. You go back to Deuteronomy 31, or you can just listen. This is, it's the time where Moses knows he's not going to be here on earth very much longer, so he's preparing Joshua to take his place. And in Deuteronomy 31, starting at verse 6, says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the, the, the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them. 
and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Not long afterwards, Moses died. Joshua all of a sudden is in charge of the nation. And God says to Joshua in chapter 1, starting at verse 6 in the book of Joshua, be strong and courageous. There it is again. Because you will lead this people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. He tells them, and you can write this on your outline, be strong and courageous. You see, they were venturing into a new land and a whole lot was at stake. We come to the New Testament in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5. It was the critical early days of the church. They were going into new territory, and a whole lot was at stake. And it's interesting that one of the things that was most noticeable to the people listening to the apostles is in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They recognized that they were followers of Jesus because they were courageous and under the uh, face of pressure. Well, America's founders, I think, were in a similar situation. They were going into a new territory, and a whole lot was at stake, and the cost was extremely high if they failed. One example out of many are the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. The declaration was adopted by the Continental Congress on July 4, 1776, but it was not signed until August 2nd. A lot of people don't realize that. And on August 2nd, when they all gathered to sign it, after John Hancock, the president of the Continental Congress, signed it in a great big letter so the king couldn't miss it, then the delegates were called up one by one to sign their names if they were willing to do that. And history tells us that there was an awful silence in the room as that happened broken only by the roll call and the footsteps as each man walked up front and the scratch of the pen. Now, why did it get so silent all of a sudden? Because every man present believed that in signing that document, he was signing his own death warrant because the penalty for treason against the English was death by hanging. Everyone believed that would probably happen. There were, however, a couple attempts at humor after that quiet, solemn ceremony. Ben Franklin made this comment to the other guys. He says, indeed, we must all hang together, otherwise we shall assuredly hang separately. <laughs> and the funnier one, I think, is from Colonel Benjamin Harrison of Virginia, who was a rather large, a little bit heavier man, and he commented to a very skinny, lightweight representative named Elbridge Jerry of Massachusetts. And the heavy Benjamin Harrison said this. He goes, I shall have a great advantage over you, Mr. Jerry, when we are all hung for what we're now doing. He goes, with me, it'll all be over in a minute. But with you, you'll be dancing on air an hour after I'm gone. <laughs> See, those men knew that that was a very very real possibility, and they still signed their names. So the declaration concluded with these words, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. 
You see, they were each pledging to give up, if necessary, their possessions and even their lives for the stand they were taking that day. And indeed, the British soon dispatched 25,000 troops and said, go find those 56 men. Here's what happened to some of them. Lewis Morris's home was ransacked, his family driven away, his livestock captured, and the entire property ruined. William Floyd's family fled their home when a company of British horsemen occupied it. Floyd and his family were refugees from their home for nearly seven years. Thomas Hayward Jr. was taken prisoner by the British. Thomas Nelson Jr. lost his house when a British general made it his headquarters. He used his remaining wealth to pay the debts of the new nation. Francis Lewis's home was destroyed by the British Army, who then took his wife prisoner. She died within a year or two after her release. Abraham Clark suffered the capture and torture of two of his sons by the British. Francis Hopkinson's home was invaded and destroyed during the Revolution. Jonathan Hart hid in the woods for an entire year. The point is, they were men of courage who stood firm no matter what the cost. So I want to ask you today, and especially you men, are you that kind of person? You see, we must stand up for what is right, no matter what the cost. And increasingly in America right now, we need to be standing up firmly and with courage for truth, for justice, for religious freedoms, and for righteousness, no matter what the cost. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. Here's the third thing that's true of real men. Real men, live for others. Last part of that passage on the front of the bulletin says do everything in love. Philippians 2 reflects on that idea of how important this is in verse 3 when it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. That's important for everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. That's really important for fathers and husbands. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That passage simply echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 20 when he says, I came not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. See, living for others means faithful service or servanthood. I love the example of servanthood from George Washington at Valley Forge. He refused to leave the destitute soldiers in that horrendous winter at Valley Forge, even though one in four of them died of either the flu, the smallpox, typhus, or exposure. He could have been someplace by a fireplace, and he goes, no, I'm going to be here with the men. It's a servant. Probably my favorite founder is Dr. Benjamin Rush. A lot of you say, Benjamin who? (laughs) When he died in 1813, Benjamin Rush was considered one of America's three most notable founders. It was Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, and Benjamin Rush. In 1774, Benjamin Rush founded America's first anti-slavery society with Dr. Benjamin Franklin, and he became a crusader against slavery. He was a medical doctor. He was a professor of medicine. He was considered the father of American medicine and also the father of public schools. He was Surgeon General of the Continental Army. He helped write the Pennsylvania Constitution. He was Treasurer of the United States Mint, and he signed the Declaration of Independence. 
And that, that incredible man, Benjamin Rush, refused to leave Philadelphia in 1793 when 4,000 people died in 100 days in a yellow fever epidemic. Most physicians fled the city in panic. And at one point, Dr. Benjamin Rush and two other doctors were treating 6,000 people with yellow fever. Three doctors, because everyone else ran away. Folks, real men don't run and hide, they live for others. Are you a selfless person? Living for others calls for selflessness. Living for others also means serving family, men. America now has too many selfish men wanting to do their own thing while their family fends for themselves. Too many selfish men. And far too many men wanting their wife and children to serve their every whim. It's not biblical and it's not manly. Real men understand what serving family means. They understand Ephesians 5, 25, when Paul writes about the role of the husband. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then notice it says this, and gave himself up for her. Saying, husbands, love your wife enough to die for her. Real men remember this command. Real men live by, the words, uh, by those words with their families. But also living for others means living for future generations. See, real men live with an eye toward making the future better for those who will live long after they are gone. They're not just concerned about the now. And that's something that impresses me about the founders. Those men look long into the future when they gave us those founding documents and the separation of power, and the electoral college. <laughs> they knew all those years ago why those things were put in place. They anticipated future problems and misunderstandings in a mind-blowing way. <laughs> and some of them began even laying the groundwork to get rid of slavery early on. Not all of them, but some of them did. More on that in two weeks, on July 4th. And they even gave... Frequently, they gave dire warnings about removing God and the Bible from public life and public government and public education. They said, please don't do that. <laughs> don't you dare do that if you don't want absolute chaos. See, real men look beyond themselves. They don't live by the philosophy of enjoy it now and pay for it later. <laughs> Real men don't sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. But finally and quickly, real men live with integrity. Proverbs 20, verse 7, is one of the best passages in Scripture about integrity, although there are a lot of them. It says, The righteous lead blameless lives, Blessed are their children after them. You know, only one man has ever done that perfectly. But we are called to try our best to live blameless lives. And living with integrity means righteousness. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. 
Our founders believe that statement. People today despise that statement in much of America. Folks, righteousness right now is being made fun of in America. It's being mocked. Righteousness was held in high esteem in early America as a goal for life. <laughs> righteousness. Read a book several years ago, written in 1848 by B.J. Lossing called Lives of the Signers. It's simply three or four pages describing the lives of each of the 56 men that signed the Declaration. And what struck me, and I know with biographies and things, a lot of that stuff can, you know, they, they don't cover uh, negative things, it's mostly positive. But what struck me was how often it kept praising things like integrity, Christian faith, virtue, piety, morality, purity, character. Those words kept coming up over and over in these chapters describing those men. Well, our nation needs more righteousness right now. Our nation needs to quit making fun of purity and piety and morality and integrity. Our nation needs to honor righteousness again. But another part of integrity is consistency. In other words, a pattern of life where life and words match. And no, none of us does that perfectly, but for the most part, with the help of God's Spirit in us, our lives and words should match most of the time. There's too many pretenders, both now and in history. Read a cute little true story recently about a third grade girl who came to school wearing one of those Fitbit watches. The Fitbit watches, if you're not familiar with those things, are the ones that keep track of your steps. And someone can wear one, and then they know how many steps they've taken that day, so they can stay in shape and you know take the uh, take the amount of exercise they want. Well, the teacher saw this third grader wearing this Fitbit watch, and she says, "Are you tracking your steps?" And the little girl says, "No, I wear this for mommy so that she can show daddy when he gets home." Mommy was a pretender. <laughs> you know, there's only one man who ever lived with perfect consistency. And his name was Jesus. One of the greatest compliments Jesus ever received was from his enemies who had come to try to set him up and, and trip him up. And I love what they say, and I don't think they realized how much they were saying. In Matthew 22, and I meant to have this up here, and I didn't put it in with the PowerPoint, but in Matthew 22, 16, here's what they said to Jesus. Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. See what they're saying about Jesus? He was a man of integrity. He taught true things, all true things, and he was not influenced by peer pressure. What a compliment. <laughs> Men and women, are we living in such a way that someone can look at us and say, you're a person of integrity. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, and you aren't swayed by other people. Real men live consistent lives. Integrity. And when we do that, there are results. There are results. Number one, our family is blessed. That's what Ephesians 6, 4 said. Society is blessed, number two. And number three, we are blessed when we live a life of integrity because we come closer to what God wants us to be. See, our world right now really needs real men 
and real women. People who try to be like Jesus. Because after all, if you think about it, what did Jesus do? He lived for God. He lived with courage no matter what it cost him. He lived for others. And he lived with integrity. Founders didn't do that perfectly. I don't do that perfectly. You don't. But that's the model we're supposed to strive for. To live for God. Live with courage. Live for others and live with integrity. So I ask you, how... How does God view your life right now? How does God view your life right now? And then this question at the bottom of your page. What are you living for? What are you living for? Here's the other question. What kind of commitment or new start does God need you to make today? Read this last night, it was after I was actually all the way done with my sermon and everything. Stacy L. Sanchez, I saw this posted, says, The wealthiest inheritance a father can leave his children is the legacy of a life lived for God. The wealthiest inheritance a father can leave his children is the legacy of a life lived for God. Does that describe your life today? A life being lived for God. If it's not, it's time for God to change our heart. I love this little chorus. Been around a long time. It's a prayer that simply says, change my heart, O oh God. Make it ever new. It's a process. I and my imperfection, you and your imperfection, allow God through his spirit to keep changing us and help us grow in these areas to be the kind of husbands and fathers and mothers and wives and children that God wants us to be. God wants to do that this morning in your life. Maybe this is the day you commit yourself to that process for the first time. To come and confess your faith in Jesus, that he's the one that died on the cross for you, and that what he did on the cross can take away your sins completely, no matter what. But you'll repent, live his way, you'll bury the old life, baptism rise to a new life, and say it all belongs to him think about our lives, what God wants us to do, what God needs us to do today, and uh, let's be the kind of people that can change this world positively for our God. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.